You're listening to Ingenuism's Silicon Valley Examined, where we delve into how the tech industry is helping create progress at the speed of thought. I'm Dom Watkins. With me, as always, is Robert Hendershot. All right, Robert. So we have talked a lot, I think, about Silicon Valley today, but I think it'd be interesting to talk about how Silicon Valley got started and how you think about it from an ingenuous perspective and kind of what lessons we can gather from it. So um, one of the points that we were talking about before we got started, which I think is interesting in itself, is you know, you can always run the tape back and say, where, what is even the starting point? And I guess we could ultimately go back to like what the founding of California, but uh, probably let's not start there. Where, where do you, where do you uh, see is the most interesting place to start in terms of understanding the DNA of the tech revolution? I see it kind of depends whether you call it the tech revolution or you call it Silicon Valley. Um, I usually think of it as starting with the silicon piece. So uh, when Shockley moved his lab to Menlo Park, I think is a good place to plant the stake, uh, the stake in the ground. And then out of that came the modern semiconductor, I guess, actually, I don't know why I say modern. It really came the semiconductor industry first with the traitorous eight that left Shockley and started Fairchild. And then really the foundation of the U.S. semiconductor industry with National Semi and Intel. They, they all came out of Fairchild. But that's not, maybe that might be the most recent and I might be biased towards that because everything else happened before I was alive. Uh, you could go back to uh, the world wars and the role that the defense industry played, particularly in the Second World War, where there was suddenly a lot of concern after Pearl Harbor on uh, how would you detect an attack? And so there was a lot of money put into uh, radar and generally into electronics and, and a bunch of that was happening in the Bay Area. Uh, you could definitely go back to the uh, growth of the engineering school at Stanford uh, and Terman, but you could even go back to the gold rush because you know prior to the, the sort of flood of people heading West, there wasn't a critical mass of people, of uh, ambitious, entrepreneurial people on the West Coast. And so you, know, you could imagine a parallel universe where there was no gold in the Sierra Nevadas, uh, where Silicon Valley didn't end up in, in the San Francisco Bay Area because there wasn't that initial momentum that, you know, built up San Francisco and then pulled in some of the defense industry and turned it from, you know, an agricultural area into an industrial area. Um, yeah. So let's start with uh, Shockley and then, you know, on to Fairchild because that transition, I think um, at least brings out certain important things about DNA. So Shockley leaves Bell Labs. I forget exactly what year it was. And that in itself was pretty entrepreneurial of him, though he was not necessarily the world's best entrepreneur. And he gathers this insanely talented team of, I mean, basically some of the most important people in, you know, the Silicon Valley's history who 
work around him, gather around him. And then, as you say, the, you know, uh, the traitorous eight leave and start Fairchild. And so we get it like the very beginning, this idea of, you know, this is the era where you work at a company and most people, this is somewhat overstated by people looking back, but still it's a general trend that you work someplace your entire life. Um, Certainly, you know, scientists and engineers would tend to be at an institution like Bell Labs for their entire life. And here it's, we have an idea, we're going to go off and start our own thing that gets kind of implemented at the very beginning. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of happenstance there. Um, you know, Shockley reportedly moved to the West Coast uh, for personal reasons. Um, you know, he, his mother was in Mellon Park and uh, was in ill health. And, you know, he was the intellect behind the modern transistor. And he didn't invent the first transistor, but he invented really the first electronic transistor that is the foundation for all of the uh, IT revolution since then. And so him moving, I think in a, I, I'm of course speculating, um, but in an ideal world, I think he probably would have stayed at, at Bell Labs indefinitely. Uh, and so him moving was, was a big deal. And I think his intention was to bring Bell Labs to Menlo Park. Uh, you know, there, there was definitely a company, but you know, Bell was a company, AT&T was a company. They, the way that it was set up was more academic, more uh, sort of basic science exploration, which is probably why it wasn't a huge commercial success. And arguably that culture spilled over into Fairchild, which was not the, the big mushrooming of the semiconductor industry in the US. It was the next generation. So I think that uh, Shockley's labs were the first break from what was the more traditional East Coast-based approach, but it was still a couple steps away from how we think about Silicon Valley today. Well, I think one interesting thing with the move from Shockley's lab to Fairchild was, so this was before modern venture capital, certainly in Silicon Valley was a thing. And so it wasn't like they went and said to Don Valentine, who eventually would go on to work at Fair, or he would get his start working at Fairchild, if I recall correctly, and say, hey, we have this startup idea. And so there was kind of this hunt for capital. And basically, you know, they get it from this, I think it was a photography company, Fairchild, that says, hey, yeah, we'll give you some money to try out some stuff. Um, and so you get this kind of first company and the as you say that's not like they're not um it's where they go on to develop the microprocessor right or the uh not the microprocessor help me out here what's the integrated circuit circuit, right um and as you say that's not really though what they become like that that's not the main product that's sort of something that's happening behind the scenes yeah, it was a real, it was a very different time. Um, and, you know, we think about just the amazing amount of capitalists available for uh, tech companies that have even a glimmer of transforming a big sector. Uh, and we just kind of imagine, it's easy to think that that's how it always was. But, you know, even, I mean, 
even 20 years ago, we were going through sort of a tech investment desert after the collapse of the first internet boom. But if you roll back before that, in the early 90s, in the, or in the 80s, there was a boom around storage, uh, but that, that uh, crumbled pretty quickly. I mean, what we had was a dearth of capital in Silicon Valley and relatively small amounts that were being invested. And so being the first ones to really blaze that trail, to go out and say, we're going to start a company, it's going to do something with this, this stuff called silicon, where we make these things called transistors that you can't actually like see. You, you just have to trust us that there's really something going on in there but that so clearly had potential applications in all of these areas, uh, anything relating to electronics, you know, if you had any sort of vision, you could imagine it, it transforming what you were doing. Um, so there was a vision that had to be sold, but it was the first time that, that people were being asked to buy a vision. And so it, it was just a, a very uh, meandering and, and un- it, it was not a well laid out path. Today, you know exactly if you're going to go out and if you're an entrepreneur, you want to raise capital from VCs in on Sand Hill Road. You you know exactly what you're supposed to do. There was none of that back then, or even you know 30 years ago. It was people were discovering what we now accept as the venture model. Yeah, and so part of what was going on was that like it wasn't even we're starting a company because we have this particular product we're going to create it's there's this growing exciting technology that we're in the frontiers of and basically just a confidence that we'll figure out something to do with it and somebody to sell it to and uh certainly that was true of fairchild um another another company that's kind of uh around earlier or at least got it started earlier, but it's growing up around this time is Hewlett Packard, which, I mean, they're an interesting example. They didn't really start out with capital. They basically grew from, you know, their first sale and just kind of built from there over time. Um, now they were kind of like more in the radio space uh, at, at this point, but now we have, you know, some of these kind of technologies being built up in this area and the first rudiments of what's going to become the DNA of Silicon Valley. I think one thing worth commenting on is um, if you contrast the kind of typical management style of, let's focus maybe in the 1950s, which is sort of where you start getting the turning point that's going to climax in um, what we know of Silicon Valley today. You know, it was these kind of top-down management you need to conform to the way things are. Uh, if you think about, you know, like IB, the IBM, like you're going to dress in the company suit and, you know, like do as you're told. Um, certainly uh, at Fairchild and under uh, Robert Noyce, there's much more of an egalitarian ethic of, hey, like I'm not here to give you orders. We're, uh, we're all just going to kind of be creative together, be independent minded. At Hewlett Packard, uh, there was kind of a similar sort of ethos they had with, you know, they called, I think, walking around management. So it's, we're going to make clear the objectives and we're going to be here as a resource, but we're not going to be telling you what to do or how to do it. We have confidence that you guys will figure out cool things to do. And then at the end of the year, we'll sit down and say, hey, how did you do it meeting the company's goals rather than this idea that employees have to be kind of controlled and cudgeled 
into acting in the interest of companies. So you get a very, you start getting um, changes that are pushing more in the direction of like unleashing the entrepreneurialism of the employees at a company rather than channeling it towards this predefined destination. And that's why when I look at early Silicon Valley, it just seems so obvious that it was it was the early form of ingenuism because you know the core tenets of ingenuism are that you have to you try you have to trust and you have to be humble. And the difference between what was going on in most of big business in the 50s and 60s and what was going on in Silicon Valley in the 60s and 70s was that in most of American business, uh, the, the people at the top thought they had the answers. You know, we had figured things out. And yes, maybe we would use statistical methods to optimize and to improve a few percent here and a few percent there. But the basic approach of business had been solved. And there, there was reasonable evidence for that. Like Ford had shown that if we do it this particular way, that it'll be wildly more successful and more efficient than if we follow the old, more you know, craftsman model. Or, uh, you know, McDonald's was just starting to show if you take a particular concept and you standardize it and you optimize it and then you replicate it over and over and over around the country, that it can be wildly successful. And so it was a reasonable position to be taking, but it, it's very anti-ingenuity. And to have the Valley and the early semiconductor companies, uh, if they had been squeezed into that somehow, I think it would have been a very, very different future. Because you know, these the leaders at Fairchild, you know, the noises of the world, they did not think they had the answers. They were working with their teams to figure things out. And Hewlett and Packard uh, reportedly had the same kind of approach that they weren't going to come in with the answers. And then here, you know, Don, you go and implement it. Here's what you should do. No, they were going to come in with interesting questions. And as you say, be a resource, be part of the team, but that the group was going to figure it out together. And that takes a level of humility and a level of trust that wasn't very common in uh, American business at the time. Well, and Hewlett-Packard was explicit about it. I mean, that was part of how they talked about why they managed the way they did was precisely this idea of trust, that like you had to trust your employees to figure it out. You couldn't treat them like children. And, and that was kind of like part of the culture that then I mean, the company was, we sometimes forget today because HP basically got kind of lost, I think, in the commoditization of, you know, computers during the 90s and 2000s. Um, but I mean, they were looked at the way that Apple is today as kind of like, you know, the best run company in America and just super successful and admirable, you know, waiting list of potential employees. Um, but I think, you know, really spearheaded this um a different kind of way of managing a big company. And, uh, and what one interesting contrast, I think, between Fairchild and HP that I'd like to hear your thoughts. And so at HP, um, I mean, they, they did not like to fire people and indeed almost wanted to encourage this idea of job for life. They were, they had a chance to get some contract with the government at some point where they'd have to take on 16 employees and uh, I forget whether it was Hewlett or Packard asked, well, are we going to have work for them after this contract is over? 
And the guy said, no. And they said, well, then we're not taking the contract. So it's like, we're going to, rather than fire an employee at some point, we're going to turn down business. Fairchild is interesting in that they're, there could be it splinters off into a raft of different companies. I mean, a, a bunch, most of ones people haven't heard of today, but like everybody who worked there went off and was creating new startups. So it was very much uh, HP, I think, in terms of kind of this long term relationship with employees was very different than um, Fairchild, which seems to have more the model of you have these kind of people who are really valuable, but they're entrepreneurs in their own right who are going to go start their own thing at some point. Um, and I think people have raised real questions about, uh, you know, HP in, in those days of um, it was a great place to work unless you were that kind of innovative entrepreneurial type uh, who, who wasn't going to stick around and not fit in. So do you have any thoughts on sort of the, um, which if either you think is more aligned with how you think about uh, with ingenuous principles and, do you see the influence? Do you see an HP influence given that kind of radical difference in the nature of, um, let's call it the long term relationship with employees? Well, I think that that you point to something that's really interesting, and I think was a big blind spot for Hewlett and Packard. You know, when they they created their company together, they put their names on it. They thought of it as a family. And if you run a company, I don't know anyone who runs a company who likes firing people. It is not the highlight of anyone's day to be letting people go. So it's completely understandable. And you could even argue that it it was admirable, but it is in fundamental conflict with their um, stated idea that they were going to trust their employees because if you really trust your employees, you trust that if you don't have work for them, <laughs> that they'll find something you know, better, as good, better, more interesting, more that having them work at HP for their entire lives, regardless of whether there, were op- there was work that needed to be done or whether there was opportunity for them to grow. If you're turning down opportunities that could lead to other things, maybe not at HP, but for the people who work on it, who are exposed to new ideas and, and new questions and potentially go out and start their own company that isn't a completely different, you know, all of that is, is in my mind, core to ingenuism and core to what HP, the direction they were pointing themselves. And so I see it as a big blind spot. And if you look at Silicon Valley today, it's definitely the Fairchild model that has uh, evolved to dominate. And it's not surprising because if you're going to really put yourself behind the idea that you're going to trust people to figure it out, that extends to their careers. They don't need you. They don't need you, HP, to provide them with a job uh, forever. And it did alter the culture over time because people who are looking for a job forever tended to gravitate towards HP and people who were more entrepreneurial and who were you know, a, a little more ADD and willing to look at different questions and eager to, to attack different problems, they ended up elsewhere. And that sort of selection bias originally worked in HP's favor you know, because they did trust their employees and they weren't creating a rigid work environment where you had a specific time card and you had specific uh, accountabilities and you were never supposed to move outside of your own zone. 
you know, that was very attractive to talented, creative people. But then as time passed, HP became the GM of the Valley where people would go to retire and still collect a paycheck. Uh, and that's, of course, a, a death deal for you in Silicon Valley. So Fairchild, we don't necessarily have to rehearse the whole, you know, every step of what happened. But I thought one interesting thing about why it starts to it doesn't become what you might expect it to become given that it has basically all, you know, the people who are going to start Intel, the people who are going to start venture, all of the leading venture capital firms or many of the leading venture capital firms. It has all of these amazing people. But one thing that happens is that, um, so they're basically started out with a loan from Fairchild more or less. And then a couple of years in Fairchild in giving them that money had the right to buy them and did buy them because they were, uh, incredibly successful in their first few years. And over time, a couple of things change. One is that they become very tight-fisted with stock options, uh, or not options necessarily in those days, but stock that employees could buy, which was, that, I mean, that was the upside, right? That's how you're going to get all these great people to work for you, to work really hard for you. And so that becomes one problem. They also take Noyce out and put him in charge of the company as a whole rather than this entrepreneurial upstart uh, piece of the company. And so, you know, that doesn't last. What do you see as sort of the, whether you want to talk about Fairchild or just the next evolution in terms of Silicon Valley? Well, there were two things that, that came out of that, those early years. Uh, one was that fitting this new thing, uh, which we now call Silicon Valley, into the existing corporate culture in America was going to be very hard. So, you know, you can imagine you're running Fairchild and uh, you, at Fairchild, the the company providing a loan, you've got this, you know, this interesting thing that could definitely affect your business, you fund it, and then suddenly it looks like that's a way better business to be into. It would make perfect sense to say, well, let's just bring them in and let them, you know, take over like the blob and grow and envelop the entire company and we'll end up with this amazing new company. Uh, and it is a great idea, except it's very hard to mesh those two cultures and just employee stock would be an obvious one. Uh, but it's not just Fairchild, it's uh, companies like Xerox. Xerox had amazing technology uh, that it never quite figured out how to take advantage of inside of the corporate culture that the company was endowed with, which you know was a wildly successful company. And so it's hard to give that up. Or even Bell, um, AT&T, Bell Labs was bringing out technology that in the long run was going to be way more important than even the telephone monopoly. And yet it was very hard for actually AT&T spent almost no time trying to uh, leverage it outside of the telecommunications applications. And so you needed to see a, a uh, granting of regard to this new sector where it would be given its own freedom to develop in its own way because it was new, because you, you wouldn't, weren't bringing in the same people. You needed a lot of engineers, you needed scientists, you needed people who understood this technology that was, was brand new. And it was, it's still the world of physical things, but it's also the world of atoms. 
Uh, and so it was something that not actually, not, I was going to say not everyone, but, but most people just had no clue about. It was like magic. And well, that's just one thing I found so striking. It's not like today where there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who know some piece of this. It's that basically, you know, every, this small group of, you know, a few hundred people, let's say, or maybe a few thousand at most, they knew everyone and everything about this because there wasn't that much to know. There's like just a bunch of discovery and experimentation taking place. And so it was like this whole little universe of, you know, it's the people playing around with Bitcoin in 2008, 2009 or something like that. Yeah. And so when you want to develop it sort of from scratch, but of course, you know, then nobody has the resources or even the business acumen knowledge to do that. It, it takes a few iterations and it's actually kind of amazing that we went from chocolate to Fairchild to, to Intel. Um, Although Intel, Intel struggled for a lot of years uh, before they became really dominant. Uh, and that's because there was no playbook. There, there was no path that you could automatically follow and there was no supporting infrastructure. And you had the benefits of it being a small universe where everyone knew what was going on and knew each other, but you didn't have a dozen law firms that were all set up to support uh, these companies, you didn't have staffing firms, you you didn't have um, even landlords who understood what the business was and were eager to uh, rent their properties to this technology sector. There was all the unknown and the weird and the scary, uh, and you didn't have anyone to finance it. I mean, you were getting loans from industrial companies, um, and venture capital had to evolve very, and it did very slowly. I remember the story of when Kleiner Perkins was first putting their fund together, which is wildly successful. Uh, but they were trying to put together $10 million and they were having a really hard time doing it. And I think they ended up getting $2.5 million from the Hillman company and raised $2.5 million somewhere else. And they couldn't raise any more. So they got a, a $5 million co-investment commitment from the Hillman company. The Hillman company was a, a, a Pennsylvania-based, you know, old school industrial company uh, that was was clever enough to have seen that this new thing couldn't be fit under their existing competencies and skills, that if they were going to participate, they needed experts in this. And so giving money to the original Kleiner Perkins team you know, made a lot of sense because they had the insight, they had the connections, they had the knowledge to be able to make these kind of investments. But if you think about Kleiner Perkins, who today, you know, might want to raise 500 million and within 30 seconds has offers of $5 billion, you know, that, that didn't exist in the seventies or even the eighties that that was back when everyone was trying to figure out what was the right way to do this so that we could try these really ambitious, even audacious projects that often were going to fail and still somehow all make a lot of money at the end. You know, what did it need to look like? And back in the early days, you know, particularly when you're thinking about the, the Fairchild days, there was none of that. Nobody knew what to do. They were all figuring it out. And then in the end, because they were the ones who were learning 
what was going to work, they became the luminaries that, that could provide that sort of insight to the next generation, whether it was through, um, you know, having worked at Intel or whether it was through founding a venture capital firm or whether it was through founding even a law firm, that that's what was necessary to make it the sort of it's not a seamless process, but it's a complete process today from someone, an entrepreneur having an idea to being able to, to take it through the steps that it needs to get to market as efficiently and as effectively as possible. And so, um, I mean, you know, Intel certainly seems like a pretty big turning point, right? Because now we have you know, the company that's going to spearhead microprocessors, though, you know, that they have some trouble and that's not even how they started, right? I mean, they started mainly as a memory chip company until the Japanese, I guess, came along and started completely undercutting them on pricing. And I mean, eventually had to make, you know, the decision that, all right, we're going to go all in on microprocessors. Um, this is kind of jumping out of order, but I did want to ask you, so you know, we, we focus on venture capital, but um, I have a vague recollection that I don't know if it's true that, um, you know, Milken and junk bonds were pretty important to a lot of what was happening during the late 70s and early 80s in Silicon Valley. That's outside my wheelhouse. I don't, I don't okay. actually think that's true, Don. But, okay. but um, there was a, a, parallel boom uh, around the time that you were seeing a lot of investments into storage, a parallel boom going on in leverage buyouts. Uh, but I don't have any of that. If you, if you come up with the details, you should send them because that would be cool to learn about, but I don't know anything about that. It's something, you know, you, when you have that vague memory of maybe I read something 15 years ago, or maybe I didn't. Um, so then, I mean, really in the 80s, I think, is when we get what we would think of as modern Silicon Valley, right? Once you get the kind of, um, so late 70s, 80s, where you get the personal computer and then eventually the internet is where uh, it really takes the turn. You see any other important precursors in terms of like establishing the DNA of Silicon Valley? Um, we've talked a lot about sort of the focus on exploration. Um, the kind of innovations in finance that had to happen. Uh, we haven't really mentioned, though, I, I don't necessarily think we want to go too much into this. You know, the government basically just leaving them alone, like they're going off and doing it. Though, I mean, the governments were involved in, you know, early lawsuits, uh, including Fairchild employees who basically left stealing a bunch of their technology yeah, only to find out, oh, they invented the, uh, the, uh, they invented things that we weren't expecting to come out and put us out of business. So, uh, but, you know, so you, in that sense, the, the policy legal environment was there, but not, I think, particularly uh, relevant. Any other aspects that you think of that were really going to drive uh, and shape Silicon Valley in, um, once we get to kind of like the Intel era? I think that um, up through that point that uh, the defense component was still really important. Um, you know, there, there were increasingly demands once the computer industry took off, there were increasingly demands 
for uh, integrated circuits and their microprocessors. But the original demand uh, really came from telecommunications and defense. And it's interesting because you know you you mentioned policy and you know we've talked about and and there's a lot of commentary about you know what should the government be doing and how can they the government take actions that will support innovation and progress and a lot of the examples including silicon valley end up pointing back to the department of defense you know why is it that when we look for these things the examples we come up always seem to relate to the Department of Defense. And I've been thinking about that a fair amount because you know we we tend to gravitate, I tend to gravitate towards, well, the place that government should, and this is obviously my academic training holding me down like an anchor, but that governments are able to um, fix market failures and innovation is a public good. And in particular, basic research and basic knowledge are public goods and will be underproduced by the market. And from a theoretical perspective, uh, that's all true. And in practice, it probably is true to some extent. But if we want to look at reality, it's you know, places like the Bay Area that have a strong defense component that are very results oriented. So yes, there's a lot of money and I'm not arguing that the Department of Defense is a uh, efficient spender of their dollars. You know, we've all heard stories of the thousand dollar hammer or what, whatnot, but the way that the defense department is set up, which is to have lots of money, uh, have not a lot of concern about how it's spent, because no matter how much they spend, it's going to be less costly than us being invaded and, and taken over by some foreign power, that that combination is is potentially really powerful. And I don't have a conclusion on it, but as I think about you know Silicon Valley, the early years, you had, you know, in part because of the, the impetus of World War II, but then also because of the Cold War, the threat of uh, nuclear war, the desire to detect incoming missiles, the desire to build a way that, that may have been, that may have been completely uh, key to having a Silicon Valley like we see it today. Uh, but if I think about into your your question of um, you know what else is going on, you know it wasn't a foregone conclusion even in the '80s that Silicon Valley would be Silicon Valley. Um, Route 128 outside of Boston had the dominant uh, mini computer companies. So, you know, we had gone from IBM on the East Coast dominating mainframe companies. And then we had this, this new Silicon Valley coming up in the Bay Area, but the next generation of computing was what was called a, a mini computer, which was sort of a, a mini only compared to a mainframe. So a mainframe would be the size of a room and a mini computer might be the size of a refrigerator or a car. Um, also very expensive, and the leading companies were in uh, the east, were on the East Coast, mostly outside of Boston. And when you have the hardware, you tend to attract the software and a lot of the applications. So there was by no means a given that uh, Silicon Valley would be Silicon Valley at that point. And so, if I look at you know what was the other inflection point. You know, probably Silicon Graphics. 
uh, and then later Sun, because the mini computer, you know, lots of people have never even heard of the mini computer because its day in the sun ended up being so short because it was architectured after the mainframe. It was not a fundamentally different uh, piece of technology versus the server, which was really the, the bridge to the personal computer. So taking a a much more integrated, much smaller footprint, you know, sacrificing some power, but getting, uh, you know, with Moore's law, you, if you were underpowered one year, you would be overpowered the next year. Uh, so getting the benefits of the direction that silicon technology was going, architect, you know, built into the architecture and the first company was Silicon Graphics. And I think in the absence of Silicon Graphics or if Silicon Graphics had been, a uh, Boston-based company, we might be talking about Silicon Valley, but but uh, on Route 128. Instead, then we moved to more of a desktop architecture. And then we you know ended up with BC, and although IBM standardized the PC, really all the interesting things were happening uh, by that point out of Silicon Valley. And now, when you think about Route 20, 128, it's not really IT at all. It's mostly biotech. Yeah, I mean, I. Uh... You see that several times where it seems like, you know, the universe could move somewhere else. I mean, you know, Texas Instruments was competing a lot with a lot of these early technologies and um, it seemed to be, you know, a safe place to put bets at various time in history that things would congregate around it. Later on, of course, you'd get Microsoft up in Washington, which indeed, you know, does get Amazon and um, not a bad place to go. But yeah, that Silicon Valley seems, you know, it's going to, you get a lot of the concentration and certainly you get the concentration of internet companies um, for the most part. I think that that happened because of the venture capital. I mean, internet could have easily, I mean, the, the advent of the internet was that you could have done this anywhere. Uh, and as you move into software, physical location, uh, it becomes less and less relevant, but it's instead it became more relevant. So you would have things like Netscape moving to Silicon Valley. And that's, you know, Amazon is the exception. Amazon was funded by Sand Hill Road VCs, uh, but Amazon never moved to Silicon Valley. And I don't know why that was, but it's it's probably healthy to have venture hubs all over the country. And certainly at this point, um, I won't say Silicon Valley is full, but you want to, at some point, you want to stop being a brain drain. You want to start exporting the ideas and the culture that, that is Silicon Valley so that it becomes more of a mindset than a geographic location. One other element that I want to throw out there, and I don't have a good narrative of exactly how it played out. So, I mean, early on, you know, you have, a, and it, I mean, Shockley's the perfect example where it's basically, you know, an engineer science mindset. And when they're selling to the government, when they're selling to, you know, somebody who's working out of a lab at a prestigious university, um, a lot of the times you have the companies of that era being pretty effective. On the consumer front, things often didn't go well. They seem quite out of touch with uh, how to make things cost-effective, appealing to Americans. HP, who by then was very established, usually whenever they put their foot in their mouth, so to speak, it was on the consumer end 
And indeed, Texas Instruments takes off because they basically take an HP calculator and have the price on it. And uh, yeah, it's not quite as good, but people can actually afford to pay with it. Um, uh, I think HP had a famous watch that was like basically, you know, like an amazing calculator, but an awful watch. Um, And I think HP uh, stuck with the reverse Polish notation forever. Um, because it, you know, it, it was slightly better, you know, from an engineer's perspective, there were fewer keystrokes, but that that's not a consumer-based um, strategy. And I think you could put it more widely as I think that um, you get more of an integration of business intelligence with technical intelligence as time goes on. And by the time you get to, uh, I mean, I think Intel is a really good example where you finally get people who know how to run a company uh, on the business side with the best technologists. And then, you know, by the time you get to Apple, Microsoft, you really get more consumer uh, understanding the consumer and how to sell to the consumer. So there's this kind of evolution of marrying tech. And I mean, look, there, there's often a big gap between um, the leading scientists and engineers and business. And so it's, it's really interesting to me uh, seeing this evolution and ultimately you see a lot of an integration where like the engineer turns out to be really good at business. I mean, if you think about Facebook, it's like I created this really great product and I'm the person thinking about what the business looks like with Zuckerberg. And there's, you know, a lot of other people like that. Um, and I think it reflects sort of the, this integration in Silicon Valley of, you know, there was sort of a, hippie ethos that comes into it and so on um but there's always a like capitalist ethos of like we want to get rich we want to start our company we are going to give our employees stock options because we want them to have a huge financial upside uh and it and i think it's part of what marks the uniqueness of it is that you get these kind of roles that are often at odds in the culture kind of come together of like best science best technology best business love capitalism, but we're also like more, uh, if you want to put it egalitarian in the way that we're going to treat each other and, you know, kind of um, structure our businesses and it just becomes so much different than anything that the world had seen in business before, before that. Yes. And it had to be discovered, especially if, if we just take the position that, um, the defense industry played a big role in early Silicon Valley, then you, are born into a culture of not being concerned about cost efficiencies, not being concerned about um, anything other than the technology. And that's a recipe for a niche business or, or Silicon Valley having a small impact on the world. And so you have to give kudos to all of these people. I mean, it'd be easy to point to maybe Steve Jobs as you know the one who really started to change the psychology of the valley to you know what is going to be marketable, what what will people want, you know, and how can we show them that this is what they want, uh, which was a different attitude towards marketing. Before that, marketing was how do we figure out what people want? Well, let them tell us. Versus how do we figure out what people want? Well, let us show them. And so if, you know, even HP, which is, had all of the issues that you, you were talking about, they did 
eventually really nail it and hit it out of the park with the printer. And HP printers became, you know, the dominant, the standard. People would pay a premium for it, you know, and then they had the annuity of selling the ink. And, and that's what really ended up making HP a um, relevant in the modern sense and in the consumer sense of Silicon Valley, you know, their instruments, I think were still a big deal, but that's always a niche professional market. Whereas the laser printer was going to end up on, on, and next two desks in millions of people's homes. So uh, any final thoughts and, and, or, I'm interested in any ongoing questions you have about like areas that you'd like to explore more just in the origin story of Silicon Valley. Well, I mentioned uh, the role of sort of partnering with defense. I think that that's a really interesting question. And I don't know that we will ever, you know, be able to answer it. We'll probably just be forming our confirmation biases on the fly. But if, if there was a, clear signal for how, uh, in what ways that uh, government should and should not spend its money to support um, cutting edge technologies and innovation, that would be really valuable because right now we mostly talk about, well, you know, should it be a $500 million bill or should it be a $500 trillion bill or, you know, what the, the amounts, not how we spend it. And then I think that it's really important for people to appreciate that the that what gave us Silicon Valley today was a process of, of exploration and discovery and evolution where nobody knew what to do at the beginning. And yet, amazingly, you have this massive wealth creating, world changing ecosystem that spontaneously developed. And if you think about the greatest things in your life, they're almost always, whether it's just personally or professionally or societally, they're almost always things that evolve that way that we didn't start out and say, okay, here's exactly the plan. You know, I'm going to go and major in chemistry and go to medical school, and then I'm going to become a doctor, and then I'm going to do, you know, people come up with those plans and then they dump them, you know, six months later, at least uh, most people end up evolving into the life that they want or the business that is really successful and figuring out how to partner with people like having engineers trying to create companies for engineers would have had silicon valley be relatively uh, unimpactful versus having engineers bringing people in who had complementary skills which you know is what happened at facebook and what happened at google and then that's what has created things that have really changed the world. So how to, to make sure that people appreciate the story of, we, nobody knew how to do this in the first place. We still don't know exactly how to do it. We have more of a guideline and that it all comes around to connecting different people's skills and different people's talents in ways that are complementary, and then having giving them the opportunity to discover the next layer of the onion of what's going to work really well and what's going to make a difference in the world. Thanks, Robert. And if you want to discover the next onion skin in Ingenuism, go to ingenuism.com and sign up for the newsletter. Talk next week. Thanks, Tom.